Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye. Today we have part three of our biblical narrative class that we hosted this summer during our summer studies. The subject of today is on rebellion, which is right after the fall and takes up most of the Old Testament, dealing with the history of Israel and God's people rebelling against his ways. And so, yeah, we get into a lot of Old Testament scripture here, so get ready. This is part three of our summer study on the biblical narrative called Rebellion. Shall we get into it? Okay, you guys ready? Okay, we're in uh, part three of the story, Into Rebellion. So, as, as a perfect question actually to lead us in, right? Which, like, we, we went through Genesis kind of 3 through 11, mostly sat in 3 to look at the fall. But the question becomes, like, how will God deal with sin? That's a, that's a key question in this part of the story. Like, how is God going to deal with sin? Because he flooded the earth. He destroyed everything and gave clear salvation to Noah um, I'll show you where he, he does this, Genesis 9. This is a sign. This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. God's like, I'm making this so clear. I'm saving you so that you might know me and we might be in right relationship with each other. Well, by the end of Genesis 9 and 10, you realize that has not happened at all because Noah does not remain right with the Lord. So the question with this idea of covenant becomes, and this idea of sin becomes, how will God deal when he's upholding his end of the promise, but continually people are not holding up their end of the covenant, right? And, and remember, since Genesis 3, we're also asking the question, who will the seed be? Um, that ends up stomping on the serpent. Do you remember this? Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we're also looking for this idea of, of the offspring, which is why every genealogy matters in your Old Testament. It's why every king or leader or person your Old Testament writer is highlighting. You're looking at them like, is this the one who's going to crush the serpent's head and the other thing you're looking for is like the way that god is going to deal with those people who don't just fall but they fall and they refuse to repent right they refuse like in the garden when god says where are you or what have you done and the man's like the woman that you gave to me right and then the woman's like the serpent deceived me remember the blame shifting we talked about well if that continues which is what rebellion really is what does God do? How does he respond? Is he just going to flood the earth over and over again? Because he already promised not to. At the end of the flood, he promises never to do that again. So what happens to a world where God keeps his promises, but the world doesn't keep their promises back? And how on earth, if there's people that don't keep their promises back to God, then, like, is there ever going to be an offspring who keeps their promises back to God that ends up being in right relationship with him and crushing the head of the serpent and having victory over this disease that ravages our world. These are the problems that your Old Testament writers are like primarily concerned with to like stretch this story out. And they are so concerned with it that they will trace it throughout 
thousands of years of history and dozens and dozens of books. So we, we have a lot of work to do. I, I hope you're, do you need to slap yourself or something? I don't know. We, we have so much work to do. I was like prepping and Felicia, Pastor Felicia walks by and I'm like, help. Um, I have no idea. She's, she's, she's up in the next couple weeks. So um, be prepared. But here's, here's how God responds. Okay. Up, up at the top of your notes. God responds to rebellion through generous accommodations and divine action. God responds to rebellion through generous accommodations and divine action. That's like the key thought that will guide all these, all these um, kind of moments. What I'd like to do is take these key words that will help frame basically from Genesis 11 all the way through the prophets, like all, all of that chunk of your Old Testament. I'm going to try to, and what I'm going to do is give you words that will help you remember key um, key moments in this history and through this story, because this is a long stretch of time to before we get to redemption. This is a really long stretch of time. And I think these words, if you understand these words, you can, when you open your Old Testament, plot where you are by just navigating these words. You'll be like, oh, I'm kind of in like the law or the land portion or the nation or kings or something like that. These words will help you guide the story. It will also, I mean, my larger hope pastorally is will help you understand who God is a little bit in light of the rebellion, okay? Because that's, that's really what's our primary concern just as human beings is not just to like have good theological thoughts, but really to know God and his heart. And really, his heart is responding through generous accommodations and divine action. The first accommodation and divine action he makes is this word covenant. Covenant is God commits to a rebellious people. God commits to a rebellious people. And this is where Genesis 12, where we left off in the story, 11 and 12. Remember, anybody remember what Abram was doing when God called him? I showed you right at the end. It was, it was like a passage I showed you right at the end. What was he doing when God shouts out at him? It's not on the screen. It's in another passage in Joshua. Do anybody remember? It was like right at the end. You guys were like fried probably. He was worshiping foreign gods in a foreign land. He's just some dude out in um, the Ur, Ur of Chaldeans out far away. And it said he was worshiping other gods. This is in Joshua 24 if you do homework later. Um, and God just shows up to this man who is related to these people and look at what it says now the lord says to abram go from your home country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you does abram have any qualifications at this point in the story is he like righteous no he's not is he good we don't, we're not given any information on this guy until later in joshua when it says he's worshiping foreign gods but other than that, he's just a dude from this family. And this is what's so beautiful about the Lord is he just selects. He says, go to your home country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. It's very interesting. God asks him to leave but doesn't tell him where to go. Just strategic on God's part. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, this is a key line to the Jewish people. I will bless you and him, uh, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So a couple things about God's initial covenant with Abraham. It continues the covenant with Noah. It also is 
not just about Abraham, but it is about blessing the people who bless him. Blessed to be a blessing, we call it. And finally, the final effect, the final effect of this covenant is that in you and your family and this offspring I'm going to give you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is really important because when you read your Old Testament, you're going to be like, wow, God hates everyone else but Israel. <laughs> it's not true. God is using Israel to access redemption to all people everywhere. That's always been his plan. You have to read this so slowly to realize all the families of the earth. That literally means every single person on earth which will be blessed. That's why Paul, is, who is a Jew, is losing his mind in the New Testament. Because he's like, this is happening. Like, there's now, like, Chris Nye's, like, you know, descendants of pagans from Europe, like, has access to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because in Abraham, the, the door swung open after time. God used Israel and Jesus Christ and the work of the redemption to bring all people back to himself. So that's like the most important thing is God commits and commits from the get-go. And, and, and this is where things get interesting. As you move to Genesis 15 where God makes this official covenant to Abraham, you've probably maybe heard this passage before. God brings him outside, remember? He says, look towards heaven and the number of the stars if you're able to number them. He says, this is what your offspring will be. Your offspring will be like this. Trust me, trust me. And this is a key verse for you. Write this down, Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Before this point, Abram is not called righteous. In fact, he messes up a couple times. He has a rocky start, has a couple of lies that he makes and things he does that he shouldn't do. Um, takes some family members God told him to not take with him. But here we, we're, he's called righteous. And I want you to see the, the correlation between righteousness and this word believed. This word believed in, your, in Hebrew is, is the word amen, which is where we get amen. It literally means to agree, to support. It says all Abram did was God said, look at what I will do. I will bless you. Through you, I will bless all the na nations on the earth. And in you, the number of your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, I agree with that. And God sees that amen. And it says, he counted it, and that it is back to the amen. He counted the amen as righteousness. He looked at the, I believe you, God. I agree with you, God. And God saw that agreement and pointed at it and said, that's what it means to be righteous. This is really important because we always say, right, man, the Old Testament God is so mean. The Old Testament God different from the New Testament God. No, bad theology. The Old Testament God receives you in righteousness through faith. Faith is what makes you righteous. Faith is what makes you connected to God. Righteousness I defined last week as right relationship with God, right relationship with yourself, right relationship with others, right relationship with creation. With God, yourself, others, rest of creation. That's what it lives to, means to live a righteous life. And, and, and the Lord looks at someone who believes him and who rests on and gives the amen and says that's righteousness. Now look at what happens after this. They have a brief discussion about turtle doves. And um, then the sun goes down. Now in the, old, in the ancient times, you, you used to cut an animal in half to form a covenant 
an agreement between two parties. And between the two parties, you would cut an animal in half, usually a large animal, and you would, in the blood and the wreckage of that animal, both of you would walk through that animal. And that would be basically like saying, if we, if, if I, uh, you know, don't hold up the covenant, and you, or you don't hold up the covenant, may your blood be spilled like the blood of this animal. That was, right, that was kind of the, the teaching. So Abram's setting up the scene, and he's like, I'm going to, cut this bowl in half but look at as the sun was going down a deep sleep falls on Abram and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him the Lord said to Abram know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs that's going to be super important and will be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve or the one that exiles takes them into captivity and afterward they shall come out with a great possession. As for you, you will go with your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. She's like, you'll be fine, but your descendants are going to go through some trouble. When the sun had gone down, okay, it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces of dead animal. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give you this land. Catch what the author's doing. The animal's cut in half. The blood is on the ground. But Abraham never walks through. A a Abram falls asleep. A darkness falls upon him. And a flame, a torch, passes through the middle of the beast. God is beginning what, uh, to do what he does with rebellious people, which is hold up both ends of the covenant. And so it's important that God makes a covenant with Israel. But the stipulations of this covenant are actually not on Israel as much as they're on God himself because God was the only one who passed through. God passed through, you might say, in substitution of Abram in the same way that Jesus Christ went to the cross in substitution on your behalf. This is why the New Testament is filled with this kind of language, covenant language. Because God has done for you that which you could never do on your own. And he commits to you in a way that you could never commit to him. And shows you out of his great grace the way to obey him and the way to commit back to him is to embrace his great commitment to you. That's how you will end up following in obedience is not by trying to uphold your end, but realizing God has upheld both on his own. And in that, and believing that he has done that for you, is a righteous life. Pretty cool. God holds up his end of the covenant um, and holds up both ends. After here, in Genesis 15, God's actually obsessed with this word covenant. He'll say it like 900 times. Don't quote me on that, but it's like hundreds and hundreds of times from here on out. He'll constantly tell, tell the people, I made a covenant with you. I made a covenant with you. And he's always saying it when the people are doing something really bad. And this is why I'm telling you it's really important to know he passed through the middle of this beast. Is because you will read that and go, wow, he's really guilt-tripping the Israelites. You know? Like, man, I made a covenant with you. And he's like, you're not holding up your end of the deal. He's not saying that. He's saying, the reason I'm continually providing for you accommodations and grace is not because you're not holding up your end of the deal, but here's me holding up it for you. I'm holding up both ends for you yet again. Remember, because I made the covenant with you. I committed to you. 
And it's not about your faithfulness to me. It's about my faithfulness to you. That storyline in the Old Testament becomes deeply important in the redemption story because that is what Christ Jesus does on the cross. He's taking on the punishment, holding up the end of the covenant on our behalf for us in our place. It's called substitution or atonement, right? Other key words. That's the covenant. God's obsessed with that word. From this point, he forms the nation. And here, God provides identity. God provides identity to a rebellious people. So, yeah, God moves uh, the covenant. And the covenant, by the way, is all about forming a family, a nation. This is what he says, right? On that, door, on that day, the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, saying this, To your offspring, I'll give you this land. And then he, he marks out this geography. And so the offspring, the nation, and the land are going to play a really, really big role. Um, basically, the rest of Genesis is like summarizing the formation of the family. That leads you to like Exodus chapter 1, where the family now becomes a nation. And this nation becomes oppressed by this new king. This is where the first time you realize how small the Israelites are. They're growing, but they're still really small. This is, look at, behold, the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us, so let's just deal shrewdly with them. Let, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. They're like, we need to contain these guys while they're small. Because they're getting larger, and they keep having babies. And so we need to just, because God told them to be fruitful and multiply, so we need to contain them in some way. And so they begin to enslave the people of Israel and oppress the people of Israel. This passage is the formation of the nation, but this nation, as it's formed, is providing this kind of identity for the people. And the key thing about the identity, the, the very, very key thing, and, and Alec mentioned this with the um, carved images and stuff like this, the real key to the nation's identity, to Israel's identity, is that they are Yahweh's, and that's it, that they are God's. Like, they are God's nation. And that piece of identity is going to be the thing that will carry them throughout. It, it, there's nothing else that's great about this nation except that they are Yahweh's and Yahweh chose them. That's the thing that's going to keep them as an identity. And that's what's going to keep them also in a level of um, protection. Um, we need to go down. Look at, at the end of chapter 2. During these many days, the king of Egypt died. Um, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God, hearing their groaning, God, look at this. He remembered. He's like, I need to hold up both ends. I'm the covenant keeper. I made that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I renewed it. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew a really cool line God just knew and that's when he steps in with Moses and to Moses he starts to give him his identity in fact right here we hear his first he starts to tell him what he's like this is what I want you to call me I want you to call me Yahweh which is the first time he says this um, later in Exodus 6 look at what he says to Moses to Moses he says I am the Lord. By the way, anytime in the Old Testament you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it's the word Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the I am who I am, the Y-H, Y-H-W-H. It's like a name that is inexplainable, and uh, you know, to this day Jews do not write it on a whiteboard like I just did. Um, 
I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Isn't that cool? Isn't that interesting? Is that God, throughout the story, is going to continually make himself more known. But he's like, remember your family for decades and decades? They just knew me as God Almighty. They just knew me as Elohim or El Elyon. But you're going to know me as Yahweh, the I am who am. You're going to know me, and you're going to be identified with me as my people. I heard the groaning of the people, and I remembered my covenant. See, he's always going to say words like this, my covenant. He's not going to say, I remembered our agreement. <laughs> I, I didn't remember our covenant. I remembered my covenant. I remember what I dedicated to you, and because of that, I'm with you. And I am not the God who abandons you. I'm not the God who leaves you. I'm the God who stays with you and upholds both ends. And that identity is going to be a key, key thing, is knowing God. So the Israelites go on quite a journey, and we don't have time to go into all the details of the story, but freed from captivity in miraculous ways to be brought into what is they're going to be called, called the promised land. But before they really enter the promised land, God, what he desires... This is a complex graph here, okay? Can everybody see it in the back? This is super complex. These are two hearts, and this is the name of the Lord, Yahweh, okay? Incredibly complex stuff here. God um, desires the hearts of his people to be uh, connected to him. That's an arrow. That his people would be close to him, right? We see this very beginning. I told you, like, when Adam sinned, God sought after him, right? God's like walking the garden of the cool of day. He goes, where are you? Like, what have you done? He goes to Eve, like, what have you done? Constantly pursuing people. The covenant, why does he keep it? Because he just wants to be close to his creation. He desires unity with his creation. I gave you these key words before, but um, it's all about uh, God's people in God's presence, presence, uh, in God's place. Like, God's looking for unity of his people with his presence in his place. And he does whatever possibly you can possibly imagine to just get God's people with God's presence in God's place. That's where the story ends in new creation. It's like all those things are united. He wants, God's, he wants his people in his presence in a particular place. And he just wants the hearts of these people to be very close to him. And so he shows them through dramatic signs his deep, deep commitment to them. And by the time you get past the promised land into Exodus 19, God starts to then make it really clear to them what it is he wants to do. I need to open my, um, my Bible here because I have like these marks in it from which verses to emphasize. <coughs> Look at this in verse 12. The Lord's, or sorry, in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them and be ready on the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down onto Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. In other words, he's like, this whole idea of us being united, the people and the presence and the place, it's going to be on Sinai. And this is where we will live and I will rule as your king, and you'll be my people. At this point in the story, and this is really important to reflect on all of Genesis, there are no laws. 
at this point in the story in Exodus 19, there is one thing we know that keeps you close to God, and it's amening God. It's living the way that Abraham lived. Abraham's always reflected as the like the father of the faith. And the only re- he, he's not the father of the faith because he's perfect, but because he amens God, because he agrees with God. His heart is close to God, but he doesn't need the Ten Commandments. They haven't come up. Abraham didn't have Ten Commandments. Abraham didn't have one commandment except go from your home country. And he was like, okay. What I'm saying is, at the foundation of the biblical narrative, there's a way to live with God with no restrictions. There's a way to live with God with no law. Because the law doesn't come in until multiple generations. Okay, we Sometimes we look at the Old Testament, we paint it with a broad stroke, and we just go, oh, Abraham, yeah, he was like living by the Ten Commandments. Even at Exodus 19, hundreds of thousands of Israelites have no laws. They just follow Yahweh as their identity as his nation and his people group. They don't have any restrictions other than the commands he's been directly giving Moses. Moses, He's like, Moses, put your staff in the ground. I'll handle everything else. Moses, go talk to Pharaoh. Let my people go. He's just, he's just operating out of a, a relationship. The hearts are close to Yahweh. This will make sense in a little bit. So now he's saying, I want all my people to be with me. And he says, set limits around the people. Take care to not go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches that mountain will be put to death. God doesn't want you to die. So he tells you not to. So be careful. So Moses goes down to the mountain. Uh, sorry, this is important. When uh, the trumpets, when you hear the sound of a trumpet, they shall come up to the mountain. So you got to wait for the trumpet blast. So Moses goes down and he tells the people, guys, it's happening. We're all going to be with God. We're going to be on his mountain. We're going back to Eden, basically. It's just going to be on Mount Sinai. So be ready on the third day. And here's a good line. Uh, Do not go near a woman. It's a crass way of saying, like, nobody sleep with each other. Okay, we need to be pure before we go up to the mountain of the Lord. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, lightning, thick cloud, a trumpet blast, a very loud trumpet blast. Okay, what needs to happen with the trumpet blast? Okay, when the trumpet blasts, come up the mountain. Okay, so the trumpet blasts so that all the people trembled. Then Moses brought them out to the camp to meet God. He came, he's like, we're going to go meet God. And they took their stand where? At the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai, now you have to read this really slowly, and this is, this is just, it has massive implications. Now, so the trumpet blasts, and he says, when the trumpet blasts, I want you to come up to the mountain. And the word there is literally to ascend, to go to the top of the mountain, to meet with God. They hear this trumpet blast, they get scared out of their minds, and they stand at the foot of the mountain. They're not ascending the mountain. Sinai is wrapped in smoke, and the Lord descended on it with a fire, smoke, and look at, now this is another key line. The sound of the trumpet grows louder and louder. What is God saying? Come up the mountain. It's like, have you ever been outside someone's house? Honking, honk again, long honk, you know, or like whatever. It's like, are you hearing me? Right? Then Moses speaks and God answered them. And look at, the Lord comes down the mountain. Wait, was that how it was supposed to work? No, it was supposed to be the trumpet blast that people come up. But the trumpet blast, they stand at the foot of the mountain, they're scared, and God descends. To the top of the mountain, the Lord called to Moses, and Moses went up. 
And he says, go down and warn the people lest they break and the Lord look at them and they should perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves and break out against them. And, the, and, the, and Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountain Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the uh, mountain and consecrate it. That's not what God said. God said set limits, but when the trumpet comes, come up the mountain. God didn't say never come up the mountain. And Moses is like, isn't that what you said? And the Lord says, go down, I'm bringing Abraham with you, or I'm bringing Aaron with you. Don't let the priests come up, lest they break out against it. And then you get the Ten Commandments. Here's my point. Here's why this is super important. I told you, God is talking about accommodations. He's talking about giving divine grace, generous accommodations, divine action. When the people are given access to come up to the mountain of the Lord, and they don't, the Lord says, to be afraid of me is not is not the option. To obey me is to know me. And so what he does is he sets his first restrictions and his accommodations with the Ten Commandments. And they are broad, baby. There's a lot of room in these commandments you're about to read, and we're not going to go through each of them one by one. But God invites the people up. The people are scared. God gives the Ten Commandments to say this. Look, you're, you're not in your own heart you're rebellious in your own heart. You don't want to come up and see me. I'll show you a more explicit example in just a couple of verses. You don't want to come up and see me. So in order to keep you out from a rebellious life in the wilderness of humanity where you will die, I am going to put very generous and very um, vague in some ways laws so that you are kept at least in my area, like near me in some way. And so that is the first kind of level of restriction in God's world is these very simple commands. Don't kill each other. Don't sleep with a lot of people. Don't steal things. Don't carve images. These are, and then a brief law about the altar, about the altars comes in a second. But look at this, look at this. Okay, so he comes down the mountain. He gives them the 10 commandments. He goes, guys, if you're not gonna come and see me and be related to me, I'm gonna set this broad border for you. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, look it, the people were afraid. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, the people, the rebellion, and this is what the writer's trying to tell you, in your heart, God wants your heart to be close to you, but your heart does not want to be close to God. He made it so clear, he sounded trumpets for seemingly many minutes or many hours. And the people stood back and they go, we don't want to be with God. We don't want to be close to him. And God is saying, I've provided you out of Egypt. I'm asking you to come up the mountain. And yet the people go, we just want Moses. See, in your rebellion, not only do you not want God as badly as God wants you, but you also want little substitute gods. You want like the Moses who like, right? You want the pastor who preaches you the message and you don't want to actually read your Bible, right? Like not to get too personal, but right? You, you want the podcast that helps you grow. You want, you, you want some substitute to God instead of God himself. And God, especially through Jesus Christ, right? As he comes to us from down the mountain, and comes and lives like us and among us causes our rebellion to soften 
But one thing the writer wants you to know is that your rebellion is, is hardened towards God perhaps more than you think, and you want to substitute Yahweh for Moses. The identity that God provides and the law God provides. So the law is this. God provides ways to relate with a rebellious people. God provides ways to relate with a rebellious people. And this was in some of your Bible reading that I gave you in Deuteronomy 1 through 8. It's like a recap of the history of Israel. The reason I gave you that is it's like a recap of the whole history of Israel and why God did some of the things he did. So Deuteronomy 1 through 8, essential reading because it recaps some of this of God saying, I've always wanted you to be my people, but you guys are stubborn. And so here are the restrictions that I'm giving you. Let me open it up to questions and just pause for a little bit. Questions you might have, thoughts you might have. Yeah. Um, so was the biggest issue the fact that God, or the biggest issue the fact that the people feared God, or the fact that they disobeyed? Like, what, what was the, the big thing of it? Like, yeah, I wouldn't. Don't fear me, don't come up, or hey, you just disobeyed. I, I think it's the direct disobedience. And I, and I would say that, right, that we, we talk about sometimes the difference between, like, fearing God and being afraid of God. Um, God asks you to fear him all the time, you know, uh, in the sense of, like, that's the beginning of wisdom we're going to look at in Proverbs. Believe me, we'll get there. But, yeah, uh, I, think it's, it, I think it's that to fear the Lord is to know that his commands are good for you and that when you disobey them— um, we are to be afraid of not really God, but actually the consequences that come from life without God. And so obedience and healthy fear, I think, is tied together. Um, but yeah, I think the main reason was the direct disobedience. Like trumpet sounds, come up the mountain. Trumpet sounds, trumpet sounds, trumpet sounds. They're like, we don't want to go up. So it's you should obey even though you are afraid? I think so. No, it, I, I actually think so. I think that... Um, Obedience in Deuteronomy is like a, a huge thing for God. And again, the reason he wants you to obey him is so that you, you would remain close to him, that you would walk in his ways. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you abide in my love. In, in, in other words, just do what Abraham did. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Out of which you will not commit adultery, you won't steal, you won't, right? But so long as you don't do these things, Allow God to graciously instruct you back to his heart. So obey despite the fear. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, Lacey. Um, kind of going back a little bit, uh, it kept saying a couple times, like, God remembers Israel, or, like, he remembers his mm. covenant. Mm -hmm. like, did he forget? Did he forget? No. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the word remember to us is, like, yeah, forgetting. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a direction and a call of his mind. Like, it's, it's calling to his own mind that his covenant is there. Not that he forgot, but that he calls it to his mind. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is, this is important. Yeah. And also, like, he, he tells Abraham that they're going to be enslaved, basically. So why was that part of the plan? Like, like for hundreds of years, yes. we have people enslaved. We will get there. <laughs> we will get there. He doesn't just say that they'll be enslaved. He says that when they disobey... They'll not only be enslaved, but brought into exile. So there's a little bit of forecasting to Egypt. There's also a little bit of forecasting towards, uh, like, the exile into Babylon, which we're going to get to. Yeah. Okay, we got to move. 
the land will handle very quickly. In the, in the land, God provides a space and a geography to a rebellious people. A space and a geography to a rebellious people. So if we're following my incredible diagram, right after the Ten Commandments, the so the last ten in the Ten Commandments is twenty verse seventeen. Then I give you I gave you this eighteen through twenty one in Exodus twenty. And right after the Ten Commandments, they're like, We don't want to speak to God, we just want Moses. And that's where another law happens directly after that. And my point is this. As the people continue to rebel, there's more laws that are thrown on top of Israel in order to try to contain them a little bit more. If this picture is too simplistic for you, imagine in your mind a home without any fences and a home without any boundaries or barriers. Mm -hmm. okay? And you're growing up in this home, and for so long, you and your siblings play in the backyard. And your parents need no restrictions for you because you stay home. You stay near home and you play near the house. But then every so often you decide to get it into your mind to go play in the street. And you go play in the street and your parents come out and you go, you should probably not play in the street. Please just keep to the backyard, right? Okay. Well, then every once in a while you're like, yeah, but the street is like asphalt and I want to play hockey. And it's like works better out in the asphalt. And so you like, you know, you're a big Sharks fan and you like want to go play like the Sharks out in the front. So you keep going out to the front, you keep going out to the front, you keep going, well, that's where, right, the parents are like, dude, we're putting the fence, right? We're gonna, we're gonna keep you in a little bit. Or like, you're sharing a room with your brother or your sister, and you keep wanting to play in other areas of the house, right? There's ways that parents have limited children and like kept them, right, at, at bay, you know, or like I think about, I have a dog, right? They have like dog gates and stuff like that. It's like, I just don't ever want you there, you know? So I'm just gonna put this gate. You can see the, uh, the restrictions of the law and the land as continued restrictions to keep the people close to Yahweh. Because he knows if you go to foreign lands, you're going to worship foreign gods. If you marry foreign women, you're going to worship foreign gods. And worshiping foreign gods leads to all sorts of nightmares. And so God provides space and geography for rebellious people to say, I'm giving you a land, I'm giving you a law, I'm giving you a nation and an, an, an identity, so as to keep you close to me. And he'll say this now and again, and you're, you might be uncomfortable with it, but God says he is a jealous God. In the same way, and this is a metaphor in the Old Testament itself, in the same way that a husband is, is jealous for his wife and a wife is jealous for her husband. Because love involves that kind of healthy jealousy, right? You do not love, I, I would not love my wife if like she was running off with some other guy and I was like, I don't really care. Then you'd be like, wow, you really don't love your wife, right? Your, your lo love is jealous and, and God's love is jealous to say, I wanna set these boundaries and restrictions on you to, to keep you close to my heart. You're my people, I created you. And so he creates all of these stipulations and that's really what Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, these books all kind of paint the picture that God is continually, basically, trying to keep people close to his heart in whatever means he possibly can. And that's the cycle, is you see disobedience, more laws, disobedience, more laws, disobedience, more laws. When they have land, land is not enough. Because in the land, they start to appoint a structure. And that's the book of Judges, is there's this structure that's given. And they have kings. And if you notice, 
again, these are things we, we constantly forget about, okay? But for thousands of years, for many generations, the people of God were just led by people who God appointed and chose. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Joshua. God appoints a leader and is just like, this is my guy. And the people go, great, right? We will follow you. We will, we will, sh we will show up for, for, for you. In fact, um, at the end of Joshua, they, they, sh they say like, hey, we're going to show up for you, Joshua, and we're going to follow the Lord, right? Um, the people of God, they come together and they say uh, that they'll follow the Lord and they'll serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> He's like, you can't do it. Like, God is jealous and you're constantly trying to run away. And they seriously commit. They seriously, seriously commit in the end of Joshua. And you literally turn the page to this book. And it takes one chapter to fail. And here it is, <laughs> Israel's disobedience. They're like, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. And they don't. And that's where they start to appoint judges. And the, the line for the kings is that God grants a leadership. He grants a leadership for the, or sorry, a leadership the rebellious people ask for. God grants a leadership the rebellious people ask for. This is really important because God doesn't come up with the idea of politics. God's like, just deal with me. Come up to the mountain or have Moses or have Joshua. Have these leaders that I appoint and I speak to them and they lead you. That's that simple. That's the way I want to relate with you. And they're like, can we do something else? So, so they appoint judges. And by the end of the book of Judges, we get this summary of the book. This is my favorite summary of any Bible. Look at the very end. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> that summarizes the entire book that leads us into Ruth. Ruth is this beautiful story, okay, because the wheels start to spin out of control with Israel as they start to politic their way to the future. And again, as God graciously gives accommodations, he graciously gives that which they ask for. He gives them kings, he gives them rulers, he gives them judges. Ruth, all I can say on it, we don't have time, it's a little story about a suburb outside of the center of Jerusalem in a little suburb called Bethlehem, which will be important in a little Christmas story coming up in the redemption story. In a little suburb of Jerusalem, there's a place called Bethlehem, and this young Moabite foreign woman comes and marries uh, an Israelite. And you go, this is a disaster. This is something God told them not to do. And yet through this line of Boaz and Ruth is the line that continues the seed of the offspring. It's thrown in the middle of the most violent books of your Old Testament to teach you this. God is at work in spite of the madness and politicking of, of all of Israel. God's at work in this little farm town, and he's carrying the seed forward. He's moving the seed forward. He's carrying the family line ahead. Yeah, Israel's a nightmare and a mess, but the, the authors are almost saying, don't worry so much about that, because God's at work through this little foreign woman and this mighty Boaz man, and they have this little baby named Obed who ends up fathering Jesse and Jesse ends up fathering David. And the end of the book of Ruth is exactly that. It's a genealogy. There's a son born to Naomi and they named him Obed 
and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So you read that story and you go, oh shoot, why am I reading the other, these other stories? <laughs> well, you're reading these other stories for this reason. Back in Deuteronomy, God told, uh, uh, told his people to beware of kings. He says, if you ever put a king up, he's like, now, I, I wouldn't even recommend this. But if you do set a king over you, the Lord should the uh, the Lord God should choose it, but also one of among your brothers the king. Look at this. Uh, you may not put a foreign a foreigner over you who is not your brother, and you can't have them require uh, acquire military power. So he's like, don't have any anytime you have a leader or a king, make sure it's one I appoint or it's a leader I appoint. But if you appoint them, it better not be a foreigner, and they better not build up military power. Uh, since the Lord said you shall never return this way again he's like don't deal with foreign nations and try to do this and also look at he should study his Bible he should write for himself a copy of the law with the Levitical priests so don't deal with foreign nations don't build up military power write and be a Bible study guy really know the law and the statutes why that his heart may not be lifted up against his brother and turn aside from the commandments right hand from the left Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy, is the, is the story, the prohibitions against kings is the story of literally every king in the Bible. They directly disobey all these things. Oh, sorry, there's one more. Yeah, he shouldn't acquire himself silver and gold. And you shouldn't acquire a lot of wives. So, yeah, don't build up military power. Don't have a ton of wives. Don't be super excessive and rich. These are bad political moves. And God is like, when you do this, oh, and make sure you're really studying the law. So when these uh, leaders come, make sure they all do this. And really within the first couple of books, you just see a wreckage of people who do not do these things. Um, this is what the people say. Appoint for us a king. We want a king. We want judges. This is in the story of Samuel. Samuel was a judge, and he was making his sons other judges. This was a generous accommodation. But look, they took bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel are like, well, we want a king. We want like a real leader. But Samuel's like, this is not good, man. The thing displeased Samuel when they said this. But look, at the Lord said this. Obey the voice of the people. He's like, I'll give you what you desire. I'll accommodate this if this is what you want. And so Samuel warns the kings with basically some Deuteronomy language. He's like, just be very, very careful. You should not be the kind of king uh, that other kings are. Do your best to deal with justice. And the Lord grants Israel, Israel's request. And that starts the cycle. If you go on page 88 of your book, by the way, there's a really good, it's called, <laughs> it's kind of harsh, the cycle of judgment where there's sin, anger, oppression, distress, cry out, there's a deliverer, and there's rest. This is given around the time of Joshua and Judges, but it really is the cycle if you look at it throughout all of your Old Testament. And so all of those laws that God gave to the kings, and God grants this leadership for people, the kings all do terrible, terrible things. I'll show you this beautiful, quick example that's so, it literally mirrors Deuteronomy 17. 
Remember, no foreign military horses that build up your military, no wives, you know, make sure that your, your trust in the Lord is secured. Solomon, look at what he does. This is, man, Solomon's doing so well for so long. And then look at Solomon imports horses from where? Yeah, good thing or bad thing? Yeah, bad thing. That's literally the exact words God told him not to do. 11 verse 1, now King Solomon, what? Oh no, bro, you were doing so good. He loved many foreign women. He had a menu. Moabites, Amorites, all, all the ites. You're like, no, not good. And he took those, uh, about 700, the 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Not truly with the Lord, not like his father. Solomon built a high place. And then look at the Lord was angry with Solomon. Now here's the important thing. When you read passages like that, you're like, dude, God's a God of grace, I thought. He clearly told his people, don't do this. Don't do this, that you would go after other gods. Look at, since this has your, been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, your kingdom's going to get torn down because I told you that would happen. And I'm the kind of God who holds up. I hold up my promises. You don't keep yours. But I'm holding up mine. And my promise to you was that when you did these things, your nation would be destroyed. This is not the way that you're to live in light of me. And as far as I can tell, all of my restrictions, you're still trying to break out. And your heart wants to break the rules to get out into what you think is freedom, but God knows is death. And that's the story of the rebellion of the people of Israel. And it gets so much to a point that they end up doing the exact thing that God promised would happen to them also. So he promises, look, if your kings rebel against you, I'll, I'll move my judgment to you. There's another promise that he gives in, back in Deuteronomy 28. Everything can be found in Deuteronomy, by the way. When you disobey, these are in a section called Consequences for Disobedience. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you. See, look, he prophesied. He said, you're going to set for yourself a king and he's going to run you amok. And when that king runs you amok and takes you into other nations and you're going to serve other gods because another nation will take you. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among the people where the Lord has led you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and you're not going to gather that much. Locusts shall consume it. You're going to plant vineyards and dress them, but you're not going to drink wine. In other words, you'll not reap what you sow because you'll be in a land that I did not design. You're going to, if you're going to try to break out, God says, I'll let you break out. But the thing I'm going to do is as you break out of my laws, I'm going to contain even your rebellion. <laughs> so you break all my laws. You break and run from my heart and destroy and wreck all of that which I have given you. I'm going to send another nation to contain you because you're so rebellious. And that is the prophecy of the exile. After the kings are, back to the story, after the kings go through their cycle, you can go to the end of a book called Second Chronicles. It's in uh, 36. And you see the decline of the people of Israel. And 
right around verse 15. Look at, this is a really sad verse. This is the summary of the cycle of disobedience. Look at, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. At this point, next verse, therefore, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, a foreign nation that was going to come and bring them in exile. Because God is saying, while you were breaking out, you don't recognize this, but through another route, I've been breaking in. As you've been breaking out, I've been breaking in through my prophets trying to disrupt you. And this is where the exile and the prophet story kind of overlap on each other with the rebellion narrative, right? Is that as you're reading the history books, which take you from Joshua to 2 Chronicles, so just hang with me a little bit, I know this is a lot of Bible nerd stuff. That's the historical books from Joshua to 2 Chronicles. You have to lay on top of those historical books your prophetic books, okay? Isaiah through Malachi, all those prophets towards the end of your Old Testament. You almost like can fold the prophets on top of those historical books to show as you read the prophets, each of those prophets are speaking to each of those kings, right? Starting with Nathan and David and moving into Jeremiah, Isaiah. They're speaking to kings like Hezekiah and King Asa and all these, all these kings you're going to read about through the history. God the entire time has been breaking in. He's like, I've sent persistently messengers. Because I have compassion on you, and I'm trying to call you not back to the law, but back to your the heart, back to the faith, and thereby the law, right? But like, truly, I'm just trying to get you back to my heart. But you're breaking these laws, the restrictions that I've put in to break out. And as you've broken out, I've been breaking in to try to call you back. This is the secret about the prophets. They're not calling people forward. It's like 10%. 10% of the prophet, prophetic literature is them calling people forward. 90% of it is them calling them back. They're like, remember Deuteronomy? Remember Exodus? Remember Leviticus? Remember Numbers? Remember all that God has done for you and all the restrictions he's done for you. Come back. Come back home. Come back to who you are. I've been trying to break in as you've been trying to break out. And as they break out, God simply upholds his promise to send them into exile, which is God, uphold, uh, God upholds his covenant to the rebellious people. And the prophets, so exile is God upholds his covenant to a rebellious people. The prophets is God graciously but truthfully speaking to a rebellious people. God graciously but truthfully speaking to a rebellious people. The end of 2 Chronicles paints the perfect picture for all the prophetic books, which is why your prophets are going to say stuff like this. In Isaiah 1.4, the Lord is speaking, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord, abandoned, they're utterly estranged. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. These are harsh words, but hear the word of the Lord. Give ear. God beckoning them back. 
right? Look at what he tells them to do. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my... He's like, stop just like posturing yourself to me. I'm not going to listen when you're just crying out but disobeying me. This is what I want. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the father, fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. And then look at, again, generous accommodations, divine action. That's the key thought at the top of all these notes. Then he says, come, <laughs> let's reason, let's talk this out. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so not only God is saying at the start of the prophetic literature that I'm going to break in through messaging, but one day I will break in through the messenger, capital M. One day, I will break in as one of you, and I will cause you to know who I am. And that's where things start to get really interesting. When you get messages like, um, Ezekiel 36, 22. Thus says the Lord, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act. You'll start to see this kind of language. And the prophets are like, best way I've heard it is like, they're building a crescendo. Do you know what that means? You musicians know that, right? The crescendo, like it, it's building. Like when you, when we're singing Do It Again on a Sunday morning and you're like, the bridge is coming. Yes, dude, Taylor Luters is taking us there. Like, and that crescendo is happening. You're like, yes. And then you like hit that second chorus and you're like, yes. Like chorus out of the bridge is always the best time. It's when the Baptists even raise their hand, right? Like that's <laughs> like the big time. And the prophets are the crescendo to Jesus. Like, the prophets are the ones, like, leading us towards redemption, where you start seeing these language, like, I'm about to act for the sake of my name, which you've profaned. Like, you've profaned my name. You've been breaking out, and I've been trying to break in. But one day, I will break in in such a way that, look, I will vindicate my holiness before your eyes. 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and all your idols. I will cleanse you. Remember I, at the beginning of Isaiah, he says, cleanse yourself. And then throughout the prophets, you start to realize, wait, are we going to cleanse ourselves or will he cleanse us? Because the prophets are kind of preaching this two-sided language. All your uncleanliness from all your idols. Look at what he says, this great promise. I'm going to give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is a crazy line. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, I won't need the restrictions because I'm calling you directly back. By coming to you and being your God and putting my spirit in you. Now, Ezekiel, I don't think, had the full vision, right? But enough of the vision to see that God was going to come for us and cause us to walk back, cause us to walk back to his heart so that we would not be like the Israelites under the law, but we would be like Abraham, right? He, he would, he would, that's why Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fill it up because the law will say in the sense of like the heart of the law was to always bring you back to the heart of God, right? And in the same way, when the Spirit of God comes on us, and we're getting into redemption here, but the servant of God 
Jesus Christ is going to be the one who puts this, the heart in us and will actually cause us to walk in statutes. And here's why it's so important with rebellion theology and like talking about the story of God, is that God's solution to rebellion is not to, um, you know, slowly correct you. It's, it's actually to change you. <laughs> it's to change. This is the problem. The problem is your heart wants to break the rules and get far from God. And God is saying, the solution will not be you, it will be me. I will put my spirit in you, and I'll actually cause you. I will cause you to obey me. And if you're a Christian in this room, you know what that's like. We all, before we knew Jesus Christ, did not want to obey Jesus, did not want to obey God. We, we do not naturally want to do that. We are rebels. We're just like the Israelites. And yet we live... I have put it this way. We live in the most privileged time in redemptive history. Because I told you, I've told you this last couple of weeks, right? We're kind of here-ish in the story. Because we have all this to look back on, we get to understand that God lives in us through the power of his Holy Spirit and does cause us to walk in his ways. I'll speak as a young man who was a, before I was a Christian, right? Before I was a Christian, um, one wife was not a good idea before I was a Christian, right? Like one wife was like not the idea a young man makes up. Um, it's not a good idea. It's not a good way to walk as a young, sinful, rebellious man. As I get to know God and his heart and his ways and his spirit dwells within me, I realize, wow, I'm being caused to walk in the statutes of the Lord. And I'm being delivered from my uncleanliness and this is the life of a Christian in Ezekiel, set up in the prophets. God graciously and truth, truthfully speaking to rebellious people. The last two are real quick. I'll just say this. Wisdom, the books of wisdom, are so gracious because it, it's God. He offers guidance to rebellious people. The wisdom books are, you know, Proverbs, Psalm, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And I love this because, okay, to an Old Testament reader and to a Jew who was hearing this prophetic word, to me, I go, uh, like, I'm at this point in the story. I go, great news. I know Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. I am causing. I just gave you that little testimony, right? God's working in my life. But back then, you go, could you do that now? Because <laughs> we're in exile, and we're living in a foreign land, and we're, you know, mourning uh, Psalm 137, I think it is. The psalmist says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Like, this is terrible. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Proverbs, the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Psalm, Job, Ecclesiastes, those books that are kind of set in the middle of your Bible, it's saying this, no matter what happens to you, okay, as you await the promise of the new spirit and the servant who will come in your place, the one who will come after you and lead your heart back to Yahweh, as you wait, no matter what happens, God has provided you wisdom to live a fruitful life. And if you follow God's wisdom, you will follow his heart. This is why you get these verses in, uh, famous verses in um, the wisdom literature, like Psalm 1, blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it meditates on the law day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, right? This fruitful life. Saying, if you follow the Lord and his law and meditate on it and delight in it and him, your heart will remain close to God. Wisdom and the wisdom literature is the generous provision that no matter what happens, you can still live a fruitful life. You can live a fruitful life in exile. In fact, famously, Jeremiah will tell the people uh, of Israel uh, to do this very thing. Thus says the Lord, look at what he says to the people in Babylon as they're in exile. He's like, start building houses, baby. Just chill. You can live faithfully in Babylon. The entire book of Daniel is about a young man who lives wisely amongst persecution and uh, oppression and lives close to the heart of God. It's a generous provision, this wisdom, that if you live by God's wisdom, you will truly live. You can be oppressed. You can be uh, in exile. You can be poor. You don't have to be a leader of any kind. But you can live faithfully and look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. God's always giving these generous accommodations. And one of the great accommodations he gives is this wisdom accommodation. The beautiful part about this is my favorite part about really the Old Testament, I think, in a lot of ways, is that Proverbs and Psalms architect this kind of life for you. They, it's very simple. They say things like, um, I think it's this. Look at This is, um, the speaker is wisdom personified. So wisdom is saying, I love those who love me, and those who seek me uh, diligently find me. This is wisdom talking in the personification of a lady or woman. Look at Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. I walk in the way of the righteous and the paths of justice. In other words, and you see this in, in, in Proverbs, follow this way, go this way, and you will be wealthy, you'll be rich. You think, is this prosperity gospel, right? It's like, man, you follow the ways of God and like good things will happen to you. Like, look, my fruit is better than gold. Walk with the righteous, paths of justice. Riches and honor are with wisdom. So you be wise and you'll get rich. The best part about your Bible is that it doesn't just give you Psalm and Proverbs. It gives you Job and Ecclesiastes. Psalms and Proverbs say, live this way, and you will honor God, and God will honor you. Job and Ecclesiastes says, not all the time. <laughs> See, but you have to read them together. Because Job is the story of the man who followed Proverbs perfectly. Job is the story of the righteous man, the one who was, who was blameless before the Lord. He was, he was more righteous than, God, God says, is more righteous than any man who's walked the earth. He is Proverbs, and yet he suffers. And the book of Job invites you into the wisdom of God to say how, how life can be so complicated and so painful. And yet as we continue to live in wisdom, even when life is unfair, and even when life is difficult, and even when... This is the twist in Job. You don't even get the answer you want. Job is constantly asking, why am I suffering? By the end of Job, you don't get the answer. But at the, but at the very end of, of Job, you get this little, uh, little line from Job 42, 7. After the Lord spoke, the Lord comes and Job confesses and repents. 
And the Lord spoke these words to him and basically trounces all of his counterparts that were offering bad theology and elevates Job and restores Job. And the Lord gives Job more than he ever uh, asked for. And the story of Job is that God, while he doesn't answer your questions all the time about suffering, that the wise life, as you lead the wise life, it actually just pairs you with God's heart. And the book of Job is just teaching us to trust God's wisdom amidst complicated and difficult circumstances. The world was not built in a way where you can understand all the painful things that happen to you. But you have a great companion with you. And one of the great things about Job is his recognition of that very thing. Um, but Job and Ecclesiastes, like Proverbs is like, dude, everything is chill if you just know wisdom and instruction. Let the wise hear and understand and obtain guidance. And Job and Ecclesiastes is like, nope, not really. You want to end on a depressing verse? <laughs> this is the wise teacher. I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. In other words, wisdom is not about attaining it. Wisdom is about knowing God. W wisdom at the end of the day, to be a super wise person or a super knowledgeable person, at the end of the day, uh, he calls it vanity, which is, um, the real word is vapor. It's like, right, it's like um, intangible. You can't even grab it. And he's like, that's really what life is. Life is so hard to understand. And the thing that this teacher really just understands over and over again in Ecclesiastes is he just, he's like your grumpiest friend, Ecclesiastes. But at the end of it, he's like, this is all I know. After I've weighed and studied all these things, really the only thing I really understand is that fear God, keep his commands. It's the whole duty of man. For God will bring every good deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Like God will handle it. And despite life's complexities and the frustrations and the sufferings, Job and Ecclesiastes are the great comfort to keep the Proverbs and to keep the wise life even amidst the chaos because it doesn't connect you to prosperity. It connects you to Jesus, to God, to God himself. Um, that's really the whole duty of man at the conclusion of these things. Wisdom offers guidance to the rebellious people and the servant is where God gives himself to a rebellious people. God gives himself to a rebellious people to make them a loving, obedient people. God gives himself to a rebellious people to make them a loving, obedient people. Genesis 3, verse 15, we saw before where there's a seed planted. Uh, where it's about, about the seed of the offspring and, and of Satan or of Eve. Uh, Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will put my spirit within you. And all throughout the prophets and the wisdom literature, they start to kind of hint at this idea and sometimes very loudly, right? And some of you are familiar with the most, uh, some of the more loud passages where, where God speaks very clearly.
What did he grow up like? A young plant. And like a dry root out of the dry ground. Does anybody remember what God cursed after Genesis 3? He cursed the serpent. He didn't curse man and wife. He cursed what? The ground. And when, um, I use the word servant because that's the word that the Bible uses to describe Jesus more so than like Messiah. Um, the New Testament uses that word, Messiah or anointed one, or the Christ. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. I hope you've heard that at some point. Um, was his title, Jesus. His last name was of Nazareth. His title was anointed one. And the, pro the clearest prophecy of him is here, that the seed was grown up like a young plant. And the forecast the prophets make is that for as God comes to earth, uh, we would think we would embrace him. But if we were reading our Old Testament carefully, we would know we would certainly reject him. Because we rejected him in Exodus 19 when he said, come up the mountain and I'm blasting the trumpets. So why would we ever believe that if God came down the mountain, which he does in Christ, he doesn't call us up, he comes down. He comes down the mountain. Why would we think that we would embrace him? If you're reading your Old Testament carefully, by the time you get to the story of Jesus, you know he will die, and he knows he'll die. Jesus took Isaiah, and I really believe that Jesus read the book of Isaiah as a young boy, as a young Jewish boy, and read these verses, and knew this was his vocation. That his vocation was not to be a political ruler. We went through that, kings, judges. That his vocation was not to be a great teacher. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, wisdom literature. That his vocation was not to be even a great leader. Judges. But that his vocation was to die. That his vocation was to be rejected. So that he could bear our grief and our sorrow. And instead of God smiting us and afflicting us, which he surely could have done and should have done, that God will take our punishment instead of give it. That God will bear our sin instead of judge it. That God will, um, look at, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all ran out of the pen. We've all broken through all the rules. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, that verse has its own twist in it, does it not? We're all sheep that have gone astray. Shouldn't it say that the Lord has laid on us the iniquity? Shouldn't it say that the Lord has judged us for our iniquity? But it's laid on the servant. It's laid on this forecasted servant to come who will take it all. Um, which is why you can get some of the passages in Peter where he says he, he himself bore our sins on the tree. Um, and this is kind of where the prophets point us is towards this servant uh, that is to come which is very important as we lead into the good news next week and as Felicia teaches you the redemption story it's very important to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in their own different way were very very well versed in the Hebrew scriptures and will take many of these key words and show us how the servant is the wisdom of God that has been prophesied the one who went into exile for us on our behalf the king of kings who did not hoard power and try to build up military power and have many wives, but was a single man who laid his power down and was killed 
and that didn't try to grab power. These are the different motifs and ways that God, in the end, like keeps his covenant and his generous accommodations to us and continues to act divinely uh, to a rebellious people. God has always acted this way, will always act this way, and in Christ has acted that way so that we might know him. So good news awaits as we get towards the end of the prophets because we are awaiting the servant, and like I said, we're in the most fortunate time in redemptive history to know the end of the story.